When the EU enacted the GDPR privacy law, there were huge changes to the WHOIS database, which is utilized by registrars, domain owners, investors, brokers, cybersecurity experts, law enforcement, and beyond. Um, today, the ICA, the Internet Commerce Association, brings on some speakers to discuss a proposal. Now, this is not the ICA's proposal, nor one they necessarily endorse, just for educational purposes to hear out what the proposal is on how we can access GDPR, um, or excuse me, who is in a post-GDPR world. A really fascinating proposal. It would include a lot of business opportunities as well. Um, really, really interesting to watch and um, watch and learn. Enjoy. First, serious about online trading? Secure your funds, keep your merchandise safe, and use a company that keeps the buyer and seller protected the whole way through. That's escrow.com. Payments you can trust. FD was built by domain investors to increase your inquiries, sales, and profit. Forget spreadsheets and archived emails. Manage your entire investment portfolio in one place using a secure and completely confidential platform. Learn more at FT.com. That's E-F-T-Y. FT.com. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll get started. Uh, my name is Camila Sankiewicz. I'm the executive director of uh, the ICA. I want to start by welcoming everyone. Uh, to today's webinar, there will be a presentation on the post-GDPR uh, Who is Access. Um, and I won't be doing too much talking right now. I'll briefly go over just the logistics of the call, and then I'll turn it over to Zach Muskowitz, ICA's General Counsel, who will introduce today's panelists uh, to you. They will take about um, 30 minutes or so to go over the, the presentation of the model. And after that, a Q&A session uh, will follow. So we'll do the question, all the questions at the end of the presentation. However, you can type them into the Q&A uh, into the Q and A uh, field at any time, and at the end of the presentation, either Zach or myself will read them out. Um, and also, just uh, just on a side note, so many of you are ICA members, uh, but for those of you who aren't, I pasted um, contact information, my contact information, and the website in the chat uh, chat field. And uh, if you have any questions about the ICA, uh, please get in touch. And um, yeah, we'd love to talk to you a little bit more. Uh, and so with that, I will turn it over to Zach. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So listen, I am super excited to uh, hear this presentation. Although I was at ICANN 65 in Marrakesh, I wasn't able to attend the session that these gentlemen have uh, prepared and it's now being repeated for us here. And uh, it's, uh, it's also going to be available online afterwards through Domain Sherpa, where we expect to have hundreds more people uh, get to learn about this crucial issue uh, about what happens to who is access uh, as a result of GDPR. It's something that's hotly debated uh, by ICANN stakeholders on an ongoing basis. There's um, an expedited policy development process that's in a so-called phase two that's looking at this. There's by no means agreement about what form 
uh, access to uh, privacy protected who is data uh, is going to take. Uh, however, we are super privileged to have these two gentlemen uh, uh, provide their vision and concept of what a universal access model could look like and uh, what use cases uh, are uh, available and presented. So for example, for domain uh, secondary market, uh, who is access is crucial uh, for to verify who owns domain names, uh, to do due diligence on acquisitions, uh, to ensure chain of title, uh, to research buyers and sellers, uh, a whole host of transactional reasons. Plus, on the IP side, we recognize that I, the I, IP lawyers and attorneys need to have access uh, in order to uh, bring their complaints against cyber squatters. And likewise, domain registrants their, and their domain lawyers need access in order to defend against sometimes what are unjustified UDRP or cyber squatting claims. And uh, beyond those stakeholders, you know, journalists, uh, investigative journalists also have traditionally relied on who is data. Uh, who is details in order to track down owners of websites uh, to draw connections between parties and that's in addition to you know law enforcement and security specialists who also need access so there's a whole bunch of uh, reasons for access but it's also hotly debated because a lot of stakeholders believe that there should be a, a blanket uh, protection for who is data subject to very limited exceptions and that's part of the debate that's going on but without further ado uh, let's hear from these two gentlemen uh, uh, Frank and Michael who uh, are both I believe IP attorneys in addition to being uh, uh, techno technology experts and have put together this approach in conjunction with the World Intellectual Property Organization. So I look forward to hearing from them how they say, see this fits, fit, fitting in the current discussion that's going on at ICANN and also uh, how they think this could help secondary market participants, journalists and others in addition to the well-recognized requirements of IP lawyers, security professionals, and law enforcement. So without further ado, I turn it back over to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Zach. Can everyone hear me fine? I just, I I, yes, yes, we're all on mute. <laughs> we couldn't answer, but yes. <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, so again, uh, thank you, Zach. Um, unfortunately, uh, Brian Beckham from WIPO, uh, who presented uh, with us uh, in Marrakesh, was uh, unable to participate today um, because of a conflict. Uh, so through the slide decks, I will also present both the WIPO slides as well as the uh, Info Network slides. Um, one thing uh, that I would like uh, to touch upon be before diving in into the presentation is the, the point that Zach had made. There currently is a very heated discussion going on within the broader ICANN community. Um, the attempt of what we did with this pilot was not intended to circumvent that discussion. In fact, as you will see through the presentation that Frank will lead you through, uh, we have tried to uh, design it as a very customizable uh, data set and, and implementation so that any final policy decisions that are made by the ICANN community can be easily integrated. So this is not an attempt to circumvent the policy development process or the multi-stakeholder approach, but more of a way of facilitating um, the community to show what actually 
is capable and how different uh, user groups of who is data uh, can be, their, their needs can be served while respecting the important uh, legal aspects of GDPR. Um, so uh, again, putting on my uh, Brian Beckham hat here, um, one of the, uh, WIPO uh, has participated in this pilot um, because they have seen the potential for them to leverage their expertise in this area. Um, one of the things that Brian has made clear um, in the uh, various presentations uh, in Marrakesh is that WIPO sees itself having a very small distinct role in the overall ecosystem um, and they expect other qualified uh, certification bodies to potentially step forward and serve that, those roles for either the cyber, uh, cyber security community, uh, the law enforcement community, potentially the domainer community. Um, so there is the ability with this software application and pilot that we have uh, uh, put forward to have different certifying bodies use this to provide differentiated access to the who is. Um, as, as, as Brian would say, WIPO is, uh, is a self-funded UN agency with uh, 192 member states. Um, WIPO uh, has been involved uh, with the domain name related issues since uh, obviously before there was an ICANN. Um, I myself have worked uh, with WIPO since the very beginning, was involved um, in my original capacity as the chair of the Registrar Constituency and help uh, drafting the, the original UDRP. Since that first uh, WIPO uh, report, they have also uh, issued a second uh, uh, internet domain name uh, process report uh, that was published in 2001. Obviously, as the world's uh, dominant uh, dispute provider under the UDRP, uh, WIPO definitely has a need to have access to uh, accurate and timely who is data. That is very critical in the, the functions that they serve and more importantly for both the complainants and respondents to the process to make sure that uh, all parties uh, can move forward um, in, a, in a timely fashion. So again, uh, what WIPO has tried to do here um, is they have tried to engage in this process, uh, leveraging their unique qualifications um, in connection uh, with the, uh, in the areas of IP and how that potentially can serve uh, a very narrowly defined role in this larger uh, ICAM problem. So um, that is that is what Brian would have said. I probably sped through that a little more quickly than he would. Um, but now let's transition into um, the genesis of this approach. And, and one of the questions that a lot of people um, ask is, well, how did you decide or uh, how did you decide to coordinate or work with WIPO in connection with this pilot? Um, and actually, the the answer to that is it, it was actually in connection with uh, the work that I have done um, with the Universal Postal Union, the UPU, which is the Registry Operator of Post PLD. Um, the UPU is uh, a specialized agency of the UN, and uh, the .post TLD is a registrant verified TLD. 
um, they are very stringent on um, who can register. One of the other things that the UPU has been involved in um, in connection with dot post is they have also begun to get involved in connection with digital identity. So they have actually promulgated the S68 standard, which is particularly focused on postal digital identity. So uh, originally when designing this software um, and uh, applications for the UPU to be involved in verifying the registrant for dot post domain names, the light bulb kind of went on to say, well, if you're verifying registrants for dot post, wouldn't you be able to verify requesters for purposes of accessing who is data? And so that really is the, the genesis of how the original work uh, we were doing in connection with the UPU and dot post led to this dialogue uh, with WIPO and the potential solution to the uh, access uh, problem that ICANN is uh, currently facing. So one of the things early on um, in, in trying to tackle the problem, recognizing the, the complexity of this problem within the ICANN community for pretty much the last 20 years, literally since the creation of ICANN, was what, would, what were the criteria that we were looking for to um, actually uh, solve the problem? So one of the things that we recognized um, is while a lot of the discussion recently has been focused on GDPR, GDPR, um, we are uh, very cognizant of the fact that um, there is a growing proliferation of data localization laws, China, Russia, India, and other countries. And we thought it was important to come up with a solution that would not only comply with just GDPR, but had the ability to comply with uh, basically uh, a different uh, a differing law set uh, from around the world. Uh, particularly if ICANN was going to invest this much time, money, and effort, um, let's get the problem solved right um, and not have to engage in this uh, again. Another uh, uh, a key criteria was that we actually looked at additional legitimate interest. Um, so we were not just looking at it from the concept of how does an IP owner or a law enforcement owner get access to the underlying identity of a specific domain name holder? But we were looking broader. Uh, as uh, Zach had uh, alluded to, uh, we've had a number of discussions with the cybersecurity researchers, uh, CERT teams, and some members from uh, law enforcement, where they do not necessarily need access to the underlying registrant data. Um, they actually can do their analysis using synonymized uh, records to identify trends. Um, so we thought that that was something that was different. And once you began to potentially look at creating synonymized records, um, that not only opened it up um, in connection with how uh, law enforcement could use it, but there was potentials for, uh, as Frank will demonstrate later on, there's the potential to issue uh, limited special use credentials for purposes of establishing the ownership of a domain name um, and potentially uh, the ability to kind of do a title or a record search for part uh, for purposes of due diligence before engaging um, in the uh, buying or selling of domain names. Uh, another important criteria, uh, and this again, 
point of uh, having this origin of this work being uh, uh, founded upon the, the UN, we were focusing on open standards and proven technologies. Uh, another aspect was we were looking to try to make as minimal changes as possible to the existing system uh, to basically uh, minimize the risks of noncompliance. And uh, another key aspect here was to try to make this model as economically self-sufficient as possible. Um, historically, uh, who is, uh, there, there were no fees. Um, and part of what we're looking at here and would have been discussed in some other models is how some of the users of, the, of this uh, more uh, verified, accurate data would be able to pay a nominal fee for, for accessing it. Um, one final point as well is we were really looking at how this redesign of uh, uh, access to registrant data could potentially foster uh, competition, innovation, and new opportunities within the DNS. Um, and one of the things that we will be touching upon here um, is how digital identity and the use of the DNS as a trust anchor um, is an important aspect. So, uh, moving on to the next slide here, one of the one of the key aspects um, that we've tried to do, and and this is uh, consistent with a lot of the other uh, uh, other models that have been discussed. There will be a code of conduct. One of the things that we have discussed that is different is we're also proposing sort of an ex post dispute resolution process. So this would be much like the UDRP. Um, so that if, in fact, a requester somehow abused or exceeded their scope of their use of this system, the data subject themselves would be able to have recourse uh, against that requester. Um, we've also uh, looked, and we are actually in discussions right now with um, uh, an insurance agent and underwriter and how we may be able to provide for a GDPR uh, basically an insurance policy to uh, cover any potential unauthorized use. Obviously, a lot of the contracting parties, particularly the registrars, have been very focused on how this may, uh, how this system could expose them to liability. So we're looking at external uh, insurance coverage to, to, to minimize this. Uh, one of, the, one of the things that is, uh, I think, different about our model here is we've tried to come up with a very, what we call, light touch uh, approach. So one of the things that is unique is we actually have a rules engine, and that rules engine actually sits at the local contracting party, whether that be a registry or a registrar. And if you look at the stack or the rule stack, there would be certain ICANN uh, consensus policy requirements that would be built into that stack, but then that individual registrar or registry would be able to customize access to meet their local needs. Um, and again, we think that this is something that is very important, particularly for uh, potentially minimizing the, the liability exposure from the, the contracting party house. Um, one of the other things that we've done here as well is that the logging, all of the requests through this centralized system will be logged. Um, they will be logged uh, both locally um, as well as centrally. So this way, uh, registrars and registries will be able to see how their systems are being accessed to determine any potential abuse. 
Um, ICANN itself would also have access to a centralized logging uh, to ensure that there is compliance uh, with the, the, any uh, consensus policies that are approved in connection with this access model. Um, again, uh, I'm, and I'm going to try to go through this because I really want Frank to kind of actually show you. They talk about how a picture's worth a thousand words. Hopefully, the, the demo will be a lot more useful um, than, the, than this slide deck. Uh, but talking to one of the things that you will be seeing from Frank is how the, the use of the credentials that we use um, in this system um, will give you differentiated access um, to uh, different types of domains as well as different types of uh, data sets um, within that. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go through this real quickly, but this is an example of what a cybersecurity researcher would see um, in their data set. And as you noticed, uh, if you could see here in the circle, notice there's a synonymous identifier. So in this situation, the security researcher, uh, all of the other information has been redacted, but they do have the ability to, uh, I have a synonymous identifier for some of their statistical analysis that they may need to undertake. This, however, would be an example uh, of an IP attorney who would be seeking to uh, potentially unmask a, a much larger uh, data set. And that's what we have shown here and what Frank will discuss later on. So one of the, one of the things that I think is important here is um, a key aspect of the digital identity service that we are using, uh, and this is something that we hope is attractive to ICANN accredited registrars and registries, is we are using the DNS as a discovery mechanism for digital identity. Um, uh, it, DNIC right now uh, is, uh, is involved in an initiative called ID for Me, and what DNIC is looking to do is to use the DNS as the trust anchor for identity services and position registrars as identity service providers. Um, in addition to this initiative by DNIC, there is also an initiative by the Spanish postal operator as part of an EU initiative where they are also looking to use the DNS. So we think this is interesting. Um, I think most people, particularly on this call, would agree that a lot of the fanfare and hype surrounding the 2012 uh, expansion of the namespace um, has not met with the original expectations. Um, so I think what's important for the broader community is how can we use the DNS um, for other innovative services that will provide opportunities to the community. Um, anything that makes the DNS relevant, I think, is important, not only to contracting parties, but uh, to ICA members as well. Um, as I've also noted here, the ability to use these, synonym, uh, these synonymous identifiers um, and incorporate this into the ecosystem has the ability to potentially create what we call a chain of titles. Um, again, with the information going dark, uh, the main tools uh, was was a resource I used to use um, as part of some of my due diligence or some of my uh, uh, testimony as an expert in the past. However, with a lot of that data going dark, it now becomes a lot harder to do that traditional analysis. 
Um, so I just kind of want to um, just stop right here and allow Frank to actually walk through the software and provide some context for um, how these words on the slide deck actually are reduced into operational code. So I will stop there and then I will let Frank, I think you could take over now. Okay, let me just share my screen here. Okay, can everyone see my desktop? Mike, can you yes. see? Okay, yeah. great. Okay, um, so, so what we've done for purposes of, of the demo um, is we have uh, three sites here that we'll be using uh, to illustrate it. We have a, a generic uh, digital identity provider, uh, which we've called MyIDP. Um, and Mike, Mike alluded that a, a big part of, of our approach um, fosters the use of uh, digital identities that incorporate uh, verified credentials, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, the next uh, slide is, is a WIPO dashboard um, to illustrate how an organization like WIPO or, or others um, can actually issue, review and issue verified credentials. And then, of course, there's uh, an actual uh, mock-up of, of a unified uh, uniform uh, access gateway um, where uh, someone can come in to actually uh, submit a request for um, uh, non-public uh, registration data. We also have a command line uh, interface. The system can be used through command line, but but for purposes of the demo, we're going to illustrate things um, with the web, uh, the web-based version. So um, at my IDP, um, if just to illustrate uh, how the identities. Uh, work. I'm going to log in here um, as, as an IP requester. And so um, wh what do you see here in, in, uh, on this page? Um, there's an inbox um, so that when um, a, a requesting party receives um, non-public uh, data person to a request, it can get delivered here directly um, from the data controller, the, the, the uh, registrar, for example. Um, and uh, so you know, the gateway that I mentioned, uh, this, this could be centralized. This could also be operated uh, by, by various uh, registrars and uh, contracted parties. Um, the way the system works, that if, if, if a request um, needs to be routed to other uh, parties as well, there's a mechanism for, uh, for submitting that portion of the request. So if you're searching multiple domains that actually have to go to two different registrars, um, regardless of which portal you authenticate through, um, the uh, request will go to the appropriate place and then the uh, data will get delivered back um, to the requester through their chosen method of delivery. In, in our example, it's via their digital identity um, with, uh, with my IDP. Uh, Mike mentioned also uh, the various credentials. So in our approach, um, we envision um, requesters and, and uh, registrants uh, for that matter um, can, can have digital identities where, they're, where they have verified credentials. So uh, they may have a, a base um, personal data uh, credential that's, that's based on uh, verification of, of their identity. Uh, and that can happen through a, a number of mechanisms. Um, EITIS um, is in, in the EU, for example, um, or in-person or online proofing services um, that get incorporated into the system. Um, and then in addition to that base identity, uh, they can have additional uh, credentials. And for purposes of our demo, um, we've illustrated three. One, of course, is for IP-related um, uh, requests, and that is what we call here the, the WIPO 
uh, UDAP credential. There's also the special use credential, um, which as Mike mentioned, uh, can be uh, used to address the use case where, where uh, one registrant may want to give uh, a requester or other third party uh, access to verify their ownership of a domain name, for example. Um, and so they can give uh, access, uh, a credential that allows access just to specific domains or portfolio of domains um, through, the, uh, through the system. And the, uh, the last example we have is for a security researcher um, who can, as Mike mentioned, search synonymized data, um, for example, without having to actually unmask um, identifying information. But then if they have uh, a need um, for unmasking that, they go through the request process and provide their uh, legitimate basis uh, for that, which I'll, I'll touch on uh, in a moment. So in order to obtain a credential, um, in the example, uh, we have two here. One would be uh, if I want an IP requester, for example, I literally would submit the information that's required by WIPO. I won't go through the whole process here, but for, for obtaining various differentiated credentials uh, in the IP arena, um, you can submit a bunch of additional information, right? And then once you submit that, let me go back. Uh, once you submit that, that gets routed to WIPO for review. Um, so I submitted one earlier. So what you can see here on the, on the WIPO dashboard uh, that somebody at WIPO would look at, um, there's a new application for a credential, which identifies all of the information uh, that they would have submitted that needs to be verified in order to have that credential, uh, as well as any necessary personal information that would be used for that. All of this information actually still resides with the identity provider um, in the way we've set this up, but it's visible uh, for purposes of the application. It's visible on the WIPO site for the time being. And of course, then WIPO can issue, once they've done their verification, they can issue or revoke uh, particular credentials. Now, once, once I have a credential and I want to, uh, I want to submit a, a, a request for data, I would come to uh, one of the um, uh, uniform disclosure access gateways. Um, in this example, I'm gonna click on my IDP. I'm gonna authenticate, um, in a, it's a federated identity system. I'm gonna authenticate through my identity provider. Uh, to get into the gateway, um, and so now, now that I've now that uh, the gateway is relying on the authentication that was done by my identity provider, um, I now have the proper form that's associated uh, with with my credentials. So I logged in here as an IP uh, IP requester, um, and there are differentiated types of credentials we envision um, for the system. And now, of course, those are going to be decided by some of the policy decisions that that Mike had mentioned earlier. Um, but in the, in the way we've established the system, if I'm an IP requester, um, there are certain types of requests I can make and the form is populated uh, based on that. So if I want to come in and I'll do a, a search um, on, on several domain names. Uh, and these are actual live domains um, that we have registered. Um, and so the, the data that you'll see is actually pulled both from the public RDAP and the, uh, the private system. Um, and here what I'm doing is I'm specifying information that's required to establish the lawful basis uh, and the parameters for, for getting access to this for the type of request here, right? So in this example, it's necessary for, uh, for a legal claim. Um, it's a pre-suit investigation. 
Um, of course, I have to attest um, to the accuracy and legitimacy of, of my request, and it's subject to the code of conduct that, that Mike mentioned. Um, I accept that and I submit it. Um, now from here, uh, what happens is, I mentioned that those are three live domains that are actually registered with, uh, through different registrars and obviously are, are managed through different registries. And so um, they get routed uh, to the appropriate, um, the appropriate third, uh, the appropriate contracted party. Um, and if I can pull this up here, I can give you an example um, of how that works. Um, so if you see here, there is that I think there was a, a comment on the chat that I responded to. So in, in terms of implementing some of the uh, rules around when data can be accessed and when it can't, um, we envision uh, what we call a, a due process rules engine, but, but basically um, we envision that there's going to be an output from the policy discussions that there'll be a minimum consensus policy um, with requirements for certain use cases in providing access uh, that's uniform across um, the GTLDs in particular. Um, and then, um, but beyond that, um, individual contracted party registrars um, can, can actually uh, set some of their own rules. Um, and so this, this chart, I won't walk through the whole thing, but this just illustrates some of the logic um, that that would go through uh, in order to determine, one, whether the request satisfies all the requirements of the minimum policy, but then beyond that, whether it, it satisfies the custom rules uh, that that particular data controller um, felt necessary to apply. Um, and some of those are illustrated here. Um, you know, is it a natural or legal person? Um, if that's distinguished in the data, uh, whether the privacy rules even apply, um, is, it, is it allowed for public disclosure or not? Uh, are there certain jurisdictional rules that come into play, uh, et cetera? Um, those all can be part of that uh, rules engine uh, that that uh, helps process that request um, by the uh, by the contracted party by the the data controller that um, that would be providing it. Once um, once the request has been processed by each of the uh, each of the registrars or other contracted parties, um, then um, the uh, results of the search are are sent to the uh, to the requester. Um, which is illustrated here. So in this example, if you remember, I, I submitted illegalcontent.com.net um, and .ltd. Uh, in the first example, based on the rules processing, um, all of the non-public data um, was revealed um, and uh, satisfied all the conditions under those due process rules for uh, the requester um, to, uh, to gain access to that information. And that's based on the nature of the requester, what rights they have as a requester under their credential, the nature of the request, which was the information that I submitted uh, regarding the lawful purpose and the reason for the request, and then the nature of the data. Um, is it a natural legal person? Is there a, a jurisdictional requirement, data localization requirement that has to get looked at? Is it a special um, type of, uh, of a individual legal uh, person um, that uh, may have to be subject to a manual process? Um, th this, this approach actually envisions both manual processing or automated processing um, or something in between, uh, where you may have some things get processed automatically, some types of requests are subject based on those requirements, the nature of the, of the requester, the type of request, and the data to go to an out-of-band process. So in this uh, example uh, for dot, this dot com, all of the data was revealed. Um, in, the, in the second example, um, 
the, uh, you can see there's a little mark here. Some of the data was redacted. Um, and in this example, and we have a special code here, which I can tell you uh, for this example, uh, just means that this is a special registrant. Um, so that all that was um, provided was the country um, where the registrant is located. And of course, that would be a policy decision, uh, but the rest of the information was, was redacted, notwithstanding uh, the nature of the request and the requester. And then in the last example, um, everything was redacted um, for a different reason code. And, and this particular example was based on jurisdiction. The, uh, the requester in this example is, is based in a jurisdiction um, that, is, uh, that is subject to an out-of-band review um, or maybe an outright prohibition uh, from where the data is actually localized. Um, so that's just an illustration for, uh, for that type of, of credential. The, the other credential which, um, which we wanted to illustrate here uh, is the special use credential. Um, and so in this example, um, if I log in um, again, Um, what you see here uh, is that this particular uh, individual uh, has, has a special use credential that allows them access to illegalcontent.com and illegalcontent.biz. Um, this can be provided in a number of ways, but, but in the system we envision either, either the person who wants access can make a request that actually gets routed to the registrant, for example, um, to issue that credential. Um, or of course it can, it can happen through other mechanisms as well. But now if I go to the portal, um, uh, the UDAM portal, and I log in uh, this time as uh, based on my special use credential, I'm actually given a slightly different form. And so I'm going to type in the um, the ones that uh, that I've given access to. Oh, excuse me. And the an additional one which I was not actually um, given access to uh, based on um, based on my credentials. And then the system uh, can detect here that that it is a special use credential, special purpose credential. Um, and so the the rights around lawful basis and legal right that would get uh, tested under the rules engine are already established within the credential. So there's no additional information in this example that's needed. Um, of course, I still make my attestation and I submit uh, my request. Uh, and if I come back to my dashboard, um, you'll see here now for info business site, uh, and actually I had submitted this once earlier, so it's repeated. Um, but for dot info, I'm provided all of the information. Uh, because that was part of my valid credential. Uh, .biz, I'm also provided that information, uh, but obviously for dot, dot .site, that's redacted because uh, that exceeded the scope of, um, of uh, my authority um, based on that special use uh, credential. Um, and then the, the last example, which I'll just illustrate really quickly, um, would be for uh, the synonymized uh, requests. Um, and so in this example, I had submitted a search through a command line interface for all of these uh, domains. And this represents a portfolio that I'm trying to do analysis on. Um, and what happened here is uh, based on the use credentials, it went through processing under the rules. Uh, and all I'm provided is a synonymous identifier um, that represents um, a correlation 
uh, between uh, between these domains, uh, but not um, but not the underlying identifying information uh, itself. And that's obviously the same for uh, for the rest of them. Uh, and then the, the very last piece of this, and Mike had touched on this, uh, is the logging. Um, so we do envision there being logs uh, for the system, and those can be stored both uh, locally with with uh, with the contracted party with Registrar, um, or um, or centralized um, with with ICANN, for example, or some other uh, compliance party. And of course, the the rules around that will be set by policy, um, but um, but what we have in our example and what we envision is, is again, a synonymized log um, of, of various requests so that if, um, if someone needs to come in and, and challenge the legitimacy of a request um, or do compliance checking or for other reasons, um, if they submit a request to unmask that data, um, they can do so. Um, and then um, if they log back in, in this example, I'm logging in as, a, as an ICANN uh, person doing compliance, Uh, and I come here, you can see an unmasked report uh, for that particular requester. So I know in this particular example, it was an IP requester. This is their underlying information. Um, there's another example here with someone with a special use credential had made a request, um, et cetera. And so Mike, I think, I think that's everything, unless I miss out, I think that's everything from the, uh, from the demo side. So um, I'll, I'll turn it back to, uh, to you or to, uh, to Zach. I, I guess the best thing to do now would be to turn it back to Zach to uh, process the questions that that people have. Hopefully, there there are some questions out there. Well, I, I you know that was just fabulous. It's really impressive the way you guys uh, went so deep into the various permutations and variables and fields and uh, use cases all the way along along the process and. It's apparent that even though you two are uh, IP lawyers, you couldn't possibly have done a liberal arts degree uh, like <laughs> I did. <laughs> so, so listen, you know, we, we have uh, as uh, ICA members and also on this call, uh, uh, registrars and um, uh, escrow uh, service providers in secondary marketplaces. So I want to ask a couple questions uh, about those particular use cases. And so let me start with, um, the uh, special uh, access, uh, special, I, I'm not sure of the exact term, terminology yet. I'll have to hear it a couple more times, but a, a special access case for, for example, a, um, an escrow service that wants to verify the identity of uh, the owner of a domain name that is putting the domain name uh, through an escrow transfer process. And, and you know, very similarly, for a secondary marketplace that, that wants to ensure that the uh, name that is being uh, put up for sale on, on the aftermarket is owned by the, the person who, uh, is, who's actually selling it. So how would the token process work if you could just um, explain it simply one more time for us? Sure, Mike, do you want to take that or do you want me to take that one? You can take that. Okay, sure. Yeah, Zach, so no, great question. And so uh, what, what we envision um, right, if we step back for a second, is, is the use of, of digital identities. And what I illustrated in the demo was uh, an individual who had a special use credential. So in your example, um, you, you may have uh, an escrow service and, and obviously individual um, uh, members of that, of that escrow team uh, will have their own credentials. 
Um, and it can happen, they can get issued access credentials in a number of different ways. Um, that, that can come from a particular uh, registrant who, who's party to that transaction, right? So if it's in the midst of a transfer and they say, yes, um, I, I want to authorize uh, that escrow service to, to access my data for, for purposes of that verification, they can issue the, the credential or the, the escrow service through the system can request it and they can confirm it either way. Um, and that can give them access to the underlying data. So in that example, um, the, the, the my IDP credential that I showed there would belong to uh, somebody from the escrow service. They would then go into one of the gateways, um, you know, submit their search for, uh, for the domains that they're looking to confirm, um, and then that verification report would be delivered. Um, another way this could be done too, if you, in, in, particularly if you don't actually need access to the data itself, but just to confirm it, um, is uh, we, we also envision that as, as the use of these credentials by both registrants and, regist uh, and, and requesters, third-party requesters moves forward, um, is, is the identity obviously could be tied to um, the domains themselves uh, in, the, in the registry so that uh, I may have a, a special, um, an escrow credential, if you will, right? There, there may be, just like with the IP credential from WIPO, there may be uh, a, a general escrow credential that could be used for that purpose that would allow people to go in and actually confirm that a particular registrant and their ID is associated with a portfolio of domains without having to actually unmask the data. Of course, it, it could be used for that too, depending on policy. Um, so, so there's a couple of ways that it could be used, uh, readily adapted for, uh, for an escrow confirmation. Okay, excellent. And that's actually a good segue to the second part of my question, uh, which has to do more with uh, applications uh, potentially for registrars and how registrants access registry services. And you touched on this in the presentation that there's a, a capability of providing, I believe, uh, a user ID that uh, can potentially be used by a registrant for logging in across all registrars or, or using this unified reg registrant ID uh, to identify all domains in a person's portfolio or avoid those instances uh, where you have several different profiles with a particular registrar and you forget which domain names are under which profile, et cetera. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and let us know if, if I'm on the right track with these capabilities and if that's something that's potentially uh, offered through, through this model? So Frank, let me start. I'll start with that and then you could follow up. So, so, so thanks, Zach. So what's very interesting is when EPP was uh, originally designed, uh, you know, back in 2000, uh, the, the original intent of, of the protocol was to provide basically for a federated identity. Um, unfortunately, um, that did not happen and most registrars just transition from the RRP, the Registry Registrar Protocol, over to EPP, which has resulted in the proliferation of, of contact roids, both in the registry systems uh, as well as the registrar systems. Um, we believe um, that there is an ability, we've looked at this, um, and, and part of the, if you will, these verified credentials um, has, if you will, have already been implemented in part with what uh, ICM registry has done with XXX with their membership credential, which is a separate contact ROID, which is associated with all domain names uh, within the, the XXX uh, TLD. So 
Um, these are some of the things that we are looking at and that we've researched. And uh, Frank has done a lot more uh, <laughs> deep diving and reading into the RFP. So uh, I will I will turn it over to him to to expand a little further in that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean at a, at a high level because I'm not sure how deep we want to dive into the into the tech, but. Um, right. The, the, the idea um, of this is um, to use to be able to use digital identify identities um, to to have verified um, registrants and, and, and build that into the, the registry system. And so um, and, and a lot of this can be a, I mean, cap, from a capability standpoint, the, the system can be um, can 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 tie a bunch of different profiles together, can can you know, can keep them separate if necessary, although that somewhat defeats the, the purpose. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of that would be decided by, by policy. And, and one of the points I made in the chat was, right, we, we do envision sort of a, a minimum consensus policy for certain use cases. And then beyond that, a lot of the individual rules around these sorts of things would be left up to the, the contracted parties themselves who are responsible for the data. Um, but but in theory, um, the the system could be used. I could I could uh, as a registrant could get a verified credential and uh, or set of credentials. I have my underlying digital identity, and I may have a profile with with multiple registrars, each of which um, is its own credential. If you go back to the my IDP, I had in the, in the one illustration there, you had a white bow credential and a special use credential. That could easily be a you know one registrar credential and another registrar credential. Um, if, if, you know, and if they wanted to use federated authentication, great, or, uh, if not, um, it could also be used just to tie it to the underlying domain data in the registry, but, but actions that I take would be associated with that identity with respect to those domains. Um, so it could be used to tie various portfolios together, even if they're with different registrars. Um, and, uh, and then obviously as they're transferred, those, those credentials would be updated, um, either revoked or, or modified. So. Does that answer your question, or was there an aspect of that I didn't touch on? No, no, that, that's good. So, listen, we, we, we don't have much more time, and there are some additional questions from uh, participants and attendees. So I want to ask you two real quick questions, if you give me, uh, you know, two quick answers, and then I'll turn it back over to Camila uh, to go through some questions from the attendees before we conclude. But the, the first question is, if you, there is another model that, that was presented at ICANN 65 by PwC. If you could just, you know, uh, I don't expect you to do a, 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 an analysis of the differences. I'm sure there's many. But if you could, in a nutshell, just explain what you perceive as the uh, primary differentiators between the two models or why there are two models. Uh, well, uh, I'll give you the, the one key differentiation is in the, IP, uh, in the PwC model, it's very analogous to the trademark clearinghouse where there is a single issuer of the, of the credentials. Um, one of the things that is very key to our proposal here is we want uh, a, a variety of identity underlying base identity providers to, to be that trust anchor. So in Europe, with the EITIS regulations, any of those uh, national uh, uh, credentials uh, would be acceptable. Um, we look forward uh, it, so uh, a Digicert, uh, Symantec, uh, GoDaddy, with those, someone coming forward with their own CA or EV cert that meets certain baseline criteria. 
what we've tried to do here is create an ecosystem to foster competition, not create a, uh, a single monopolistic credential provider. We want to allow multiple identities to work in this framework, and we want those identities to be used in a number of different areas. So that, to me, um, I think is, is one of the key differentiators in, in how we've approached it. Frank, maybe on the tech. Yeah, I said real quick, I think the other point, uh, just to add to that, I obviously completely agree with what Mike just said, and then um, is, is that it's not, right, it's not a centralized approach, right? So there, there may be a uniform uh, minimum consensus policy on some of the particular use cases, and then beyond that, um, right, the, there's a lot of uh, flexibility and, and, and adaptability at the, at the uh, registrar level, and then the actual processing of the data um, does not need to go through a, a centralized um, party or organization, um, which, which we think has a lot of advantages, not just from a, a data security and, a, and an operational standpoint, but prospectively from a legal one as well, as those things get ironed out. So I'd say that decentralized versus centralized approach is another difference. Thank, thank you. Okay, uh, the last uh, quick question I have for you is, you know, what, what, what would your message be to registrars? Uh, you know, is there an opportunity for them here? Is there a benefit uh, for them when all is said and done in, in terms of the turmoil that uh, GDPR has created vis-a-vis -vis their previous way data was collected and accessed? Is there some silver lining that, that your model presents that you think uh, should be of interest to registrars? Uh, I, I guess the simple answer to that is I think this is an opportunity for new services. Um, so instead of looking at the GDPR as a burden, um, I kind of, you know, the glass half empty, I kind of look at it as half full. These are new opportunities. And this is one of the things, uh, a lot of the federated identities and using the DNS as a trust anchor, we've really built upon and incorporated a lot of the uh, business logic from DNIC and ID for me. Um, and again, I would really encourage any registrars um, on the call to look at what DNIC is proposing. And what we're looking to do is just take that and, and literally take it to a, uh, a different scale and really begin to provide different opportunities uh, for registrars as identity service providers um, in an evolving market. And, and one, one final point um, to registrars or any registries on the calls. Um, it, it was very clear uh, in Marrakesh and which will be very clear uh, in Montreal, DNS abuse is the, new, is the new code speak or the new hot button topic within ICANN. And um, in tackling abuse, you can either uh, tackle abuse by verifying registrants on the front end or doing a lot of monitoring on the back end. And if you look at what the .dk registry did by implementing registrant verification on the front, front end, we think that this is, an again, a business opportunity to address a larger DNS abuse uh, situation. So, again, we're trying to make this a win-win um, and that's kind of again guided a lot of our approach to the design and implementation of this system. And I want to add to that and touch on because I know there was a question about GDR compliance on the on the chat as well. And and I think one of the the key things, one of the key takeaways um, to your question about what what, what requesters can take, uh, reg uh, registrars can take away, is that the the approach we're taking here. Well, first of all, obviously we focused on the technology and the demo. 
But beyond that, uh, we do have a lot of thoughts on policy, which obviously there's a, a whole a group of folks trying to establish policy, but also other legal uh, aspects of this, such as dispute resolution. There's a built-in um, dispute resolution process, um, as well as uh, the concept of uh, financial state for certain uh, volume requesters um, that I know we don't have time to go into now, but, but the approach looks at not just the technology, but also policy and legal considerations um, as, as well. And uh, uh, group, uh, group insurance is another thing that we've, we've also into um, on that front as well. And then, but then on the technology side, I think the other key thing is, is, is yes, the, the intent of this is to be GDPR compliant, and, and obviously we're, we're building it compliant. Um, but what beyond that, it's not exclusively focused on GDPR. And so to the extent there are other data privacy regulations, data localization regulations, or other legal considerations, um, the, the idea of this due process uh, engine and keeping it decentralized uh, allows there to be a balance between the minimum consensus policy for, um, for GDPR, for example, um, but, but also the customization that various registrars may need to address other um, uh, risk considerations uh, beyond GDPR. Excellent. Uh, Camila? So I'll say uh, thank you so much uh, for, for the presentation, for, for answering the questions. We did have one question uh, that I believe Frank um, more or less answered just right now about GDPR uh, complaint. Um, I'll, I'll just read it out anyway, uh, just to make sure that it's been addressed. It says, uh, this is from Charles, um, is the system GDPR compliant? Can I use a GDPR compli complaint against one or more organizations in a proposed system to have my personal information? From the system, and, and the yeah, and the answer to that, as I, I I tried to go through, is, is yes. I mean that that is a big goal of this, and and I mentioned we we have actually an alternative dispute resolution um, concept that's that's part of this would be part of the code of conduct, so that if a data subject or or a registrar on behalf of a data subject had a about uh, someone exceeding exceeding the scope of of use under their credential, etc., um, there's there's mechanisms we envision being built in to address that. Thank you for that. And I think I did skip one question earlier. Uh, this was from Rick Latona. Um, I know you guys were chatting back and forth a little bit, but uh, the last question says, with that credential identifier or the hash unique identifier that represents a registrant still be shown, even if the registrar has access blocked in their rule because the customer elected for privacy. Uh, it sounds like you would hide the contact information and names but still show the unique unique identifier, even if the privacy, even if there is privacy, uh, please confirm. Yeah, no, not necessarily. We, we we showed that in the in the example to illustrate the point. But this is actually something we've had a lot of discussion about. Um, where if and I'll use the uh, the security research as, as a great example of this, where they anonymous they're not giving the underlying information. They don't necessarily have to get that contact identifier either. Um, all they need is is the actual output from that and so they may have some sort of a transaction number or something that Can relate back to it if they need to come back into the system um, but, but for security reasons and other um, it's not the, the underlying um, identifier may not need to be revealed to uh, to the requester and, and and may not be the right thing to do it may it may just be used in the back end, among the registrars and, and among the uh, within the system, 
um, to do those operations, but not necessarily disclose. Thank you. Uh, I don't see any other questions from, uh, from our attendees. Um, if there are to me, I'll be happy to board them uh, or answer them the, the best that we can. Um, we are almost at the hour, so um, I'll again thank you uh, both Michael and Frank for taking the time uh, going over the presentation, going over the, uh, the model. Um, if there's any other uh, last minute words that you want to share before we sign up? Uh, I guess the, the last final words is um, we originally uh, it demoed a proof of concept in Kobe and based upon that feedback is the current code base that you see that we uh, presented in um, uh, Marrakesh. Uh, some of the stuff that we're doing right now is we're actually beginning to implement with those registrars or registries uh, that are already have operational RDAP servers in place. Uh, as Frank said, we were already uh, pulling some of the data from those that are publicly available. If there is anyone interested, um, please let us know. Uh, we would like to see how this system can continue to evolve to, to literally be responsive to the people that need and have uh, that need access to this data on a regular basis. Um, and I think while the uh, the IP community does a pretty good job of having its voices heard. Um, I think it's important for this uh, element of uh, the community that rely upon it uh, as well, as Zach pointed out at the beginning of the call, uh, to have their voices heard as well. So any questions, please uh, uh, provide them to ICA. Uh, we'll get back. And if anyone wants to talk one-on-one, -on -one, uh, please reach out to us and uh, we'll welcome the engagement. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're certainly forward any questions. And uh, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the presentation will be posted online on Domain Sherpa. Um, and so we'll make it available to, to, to anyone to view after. And if any questions come in, we'll certainly forward them. Um, and with that, thank you again. Um, yeah, and uh, talk soon. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Take care.